Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 95 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Swimming Upstream, an interview with Sophie Ward. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Sophie Ward. Sophie Ward is a 25-year-old podcaster, blogger, and travel agency owner from Northwest England. Ms. Ward was an elite swimmer training for the London Olympics when she first started to experience the symptoms of a tick disease. She has severe migraines and sore throats. Her symptoms then escalated, and Ms. Ward experienced weight loss, gut issues, burning at the soles of her feet, and a low core body temperature. Doctors told her that she was anorexic and depressed, and her family didn't believe that she was sick. Five years and one dozen doctors later, Ms. Ward finally received a Lyme disease diagnosis. She has since focused her healing primarily around her gut health. Ms. Ward is now channeling her experience in a positive way. She has her own podcast, Chronic But Iconic, started a travel agency, and runs her own blog. She also works as an administrator for Lyme Disease UK. Most importantly, Ms. Ward uses her many talents to inspire other Lymeys to take on whatever challenges they may face. Hey, Sophie Warden, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so, so much for having me. I'm really, really excited about this. Thank you. Well, we're really excited to have you too. And we, uh, we know you're going to bless our listeners with, uh, with your beautiful story. I know a lot about it, obviously, because we've had a chance to chat. And I can't wait for you to share this story with our listeners. So, Sophie, tell our folks uh, where you live and where you grew up. So I'm from the northwest of England, near Lancaster in Lancashire. People probably know Blackpool. We're sort of 30 minutes away from Blackpool, so we're around that area. And yeah, I've been here all of my life, and I'm now 26 years old, so I'm getting on a bit now. <laughs> well, uh, I don't consider 26-year-olds getting on a bit. I wish I was 26. <laughs> but can you, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your community? Is this, a, is this a, an urban community? Is it a rural community? What kind of a community do you live in? Yeah, it's very rural and it's, well, where I am is a pretty much a small town. So everybody kind of knows everybody else, which is so nice because the community feel is really, really great. And we're very, very lucky, to be fair, to like live in such a friendly place but have the amazing views and fields all around us and things like that and it you will just wake up and you just the peaceful vibe I just love I do love city life but I don't think I could ever live in a city Sophie let's talk about what your childhood was like um did you spend a lot of time outdoors during your childhood not really obviously I was a swimmer so I spent a lot of time in a pool, in a gym, even when I was like sort of going through my childhood stages at sort of seven, eight, I was always in the pool. When I was out with my brother sort of in the garden, we don't really get the best weather in England and especially not in the Northwest. It always rains. It's always windy because we're near the coast. So it's very rare that we're very outdoorsy like people. We did used to have like the odd barbecue in the summer, but we didn't really get the chance to go outside a lot because of the weather being so dire, really. So we did do a lot of our sport and a lot of our activities indoors. So let's talk about the activity you did participate in. You, you indicated that you were a swimmer, and I understand that you were a very good swimmer and you were training uh, to hopefully join the Olympic team in 2012. Yes, swimming was my life. And 
Um, that was a goal to go to London 2012 and I was very, very blessed. I was on world class programme and I was on the London 2012 programme and I was 13 going on 14. That was the goal. I even went out to Beijing to get sort of the atmosphere, see my friends compete so that I would be better prepared for when London 2012 came around. But yeah, I, you know, I just took to water from the get-go from when I was little and I joined a club when I was sort of eight years old I went through all of my badges through childhood joined a club at eight years old and then from then I just progressed to sort of national level international level I competed for GB at the European Youth Olympics and I won a gold silver and a bronze there and that was that was such an experience and then from then I just I knew that my goal was to go to the Olympics I knew that that was where I wanted to take this it wasn't just you know, swimming at a national level anymore. I wanted to carry on competing for my country. And that was kind of what fed my soul and what inspired me so much. Well, Sophie, you were on this journey, you and your family, to represent your country on an international level. And you were having a lot yeah. of success doing that. And then something happened. You started to begin to show the symptoms of what you now know to be a tick disease. Can you share with our listeners how your developing symptoms interfered with the successes that you were having in developing as an Olympic athlete? Yes, so it all sort of stemmed from actually going out to Beijing. I went out there to see my friends, like I was saying, compete and soak up the atmosphere. But for us, it's, it's so far away that we would say, you know, don't just go for the Olympic Games, we'll do some sightseeing afterwards. So that's when we sort of started doing sightseeing. And within a couple of days, I started with a fever and I was on, put on antibiotics. Two days, I seemed to be cleared up. I just thought it was the food because Chinese food is definitely different to what we have like over here. So I just kind of put it down to, to the food because when we were in the Olympic Park, it was all sort of Western food. So we were just used to that. So when we sort of went out into Beijing and the real China, that was when we started picking up kind of the, the real Chinese food and the real China. So I was, I seemed to be fine. I came home, I carried on with my training, but as time went on and I, I reached to like 2012 when it was the year of the Olympics, that was when I started with so many different symptoms and I just rapidly declined. And it was just really quite scary because being an athlete, we're so used to our bodies bouncing back just always just on the go and we can just bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. And I just, I wasn't bouncing back the same as picking up infections like nobody's business. I was just suffering with migraines, food intolerances. I was losing a lot of weight and I was losing it really quickly, which um, of course was alarming to my family and friends. They thought that I was purposely doing it and it, that wasn't the case at all. I was just had so many intolerances and I just, I just became really, really poorly and I had to retire. I had to give up my swimming career because I couldn't train anymore. I didn't have the energy. The symptoms were just too bad. I was picking up infections, which obviously I couldn't pass on to other swimmers, so which meant I had to just have time outside the pool, which when you're training for an Olympic Games, you, you can't afford to have that time off. So that was when it got really, really scary. And like I said, I just had, had no idea what was going on. And when I retired from swimming, I obviously went to the doctors and I was just like obviously listing off this shopping list of symptoms and they just thought that I was attention seeking I was upset because I hadn't reached my dream I'd had to give up on my dream 
was probably just depressed, maybe a bit crazy, and just an 18-year-old girl crying out for help. So, Sophie, let's, let's walk back. So you were, as part of the training experience that you were going through, you took a trip to China to take in all of the experience that you needed to take in in order to prepare yourself to participate on the international stage. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And it's when you were in China that you started to suffer from the symptoms of what you now know to be Lyme disease. Yes. Um, and of course, like, I didn't even think about it at the time, but we'd gone to visit pandas. You get up close at the panda. And it was only sort of when I was going through my Lyme diagnosis, which we'll talk later about. But obviously, my consultant was like, where have you traveled to? And where did you get sick or like pick up an infection when you when you were traveling so that we can kind of pinpoint and yet that it kind of it came back to that time because I also have Coxsackie um, infection as well when I got tested and they had a massive Coxsackie outbreak in China the year before and that's when that was kind of the only sort of time I could have picked it up because I hadn't done any other traveling in that year because I've obviously been in the pool and training so hard back at home. So Sophie, what did you know about ticks and tick diseases at that time? Absolutely nothing. I'll hold my hands up. I was just admittedly, actually completely clueless. So were the folks in your community aware of ticks? Um, and was there any educational information provided to you either in school or through your community at that time? No, nothing. My community really didn't know anything about Lyme disease at all. And it's only sort of in, in recent years since I've been diagnosed and obviously I've, I've been publicly speaking about it and I've obviously been in the local news and things. And I go around the supermarket and they see me, they, they, well, they've seen the swimmer that they used to, to the, like the person they see now, which is like someone that struggles to walk some days, that's often dizzy, that's also awake. And so they're sort of understanding because they've seen my journey. They are finally kind of becoming a bit more clued up and they want to educate themselves. So they're protecting themselves, which means the world to me because that's the whole mission of this is to protect and save lives because we don't want anybody to go through the hell that we're going through. So Sophie, do you believe that you were bitten by a tick in China when you were on that portion of your journey? I think so, because like I was saying, I I got really, really close with the panda and that was kind of when I started getting my fever and I was sweating buckets. I, I've never, ever had a fever like it in my life. And then obviously my mum just got me straight back to the hotel. We cancelled all the trips for the coming days. They called the doctor out. The doctor just gave me two days worth of antibiotics, which seemed to uh, clear up the fever completely. I seemed to be fine. Got home, no issues, no sort of signs and telltale signs that anything else was like going on. So I just kind of thought, like I said, I just picked it up on the food and that I just made a fast recovery. It was only sort of four years down the line when I, I really started to dramatically decline. And, and obviously you start trying to think about what you've done in recent times. You don't think back four years. So Sophie... You talked a little bit about how you went through a physical transformation. I'm assuming you were a heavily muscled athlete who was training on a regular basis to compete 
on the international stage. And then your body started to, tr to change. You, it, it betrayed you. Yeah. You started to lose weight. I'm assuming you started to lose muscle mass. Talk to us about how you felt when you went through that process of being this heavily muscled, very athletic person to now having your body betray you and losing muscle and becoming more and more thin. It's, it's soul destroying. I know like we can joke about it now, but the lads at training, they always used to make fun of me because my muscles were bigger than theirs. And, and because I was a butterfly swimmer, I was very top heavy. So I did have a lot of muscle on um, my top half. But when they kind of saw me kind of decline, I was no longer the strong Sophie that they used to joke about having such big muscles and being so strong. They, they couldn't understand who I was becoming and I couldn't understand it because within my community and within the world of sport, I was always like the swimmer Sophie. They always used to, you know, come up to me and be like, oh, it's Sophie, she swims, you know, that was how I was identified and I was no longer able to compete to the level that I wanted to and expected for myself to. And I was just, my body was just completely changing to someone that I didn't know. And I felt like an alien within my body. I didn't feel like it was a part of me anymore. I just couldn't explain it. I didn't know how to even begin to understand it because this was all new to me. So when people are asking me like what was wrong, I, I couldn't even begin to explain so that sort of kind of I guess fueled my family and friends to kind of think that maybe I was doing this to myself that I was the cause of the, the weight loss because I wasn't coping with losing um, my swimming abilities to the extent that I couldn't train as much because I was becoming more and more poorly so that was hard because I had friends and family questioning me and I, I just couldn't explain back. I didn't know how to even argue back with them. And that was a really, really hard time for me because they were the people that we all expect in our lives to be supportive of us. And when they no longer are kind of supportive, you feel completely alone. And I just felt like my whole world was falling apart. So Sophie, you were a, a very young woman at that time and you were having doubts about yourself. And now you're, yeah. so you, so you, you were losing faith in yourself and now your family and your friends and the community of people that you were training with are now losing faith in you. How is that impacting you emotionally? So difficult because especially at the time I was 18 years old and obviously in England, you can go out drinking and go out clubbing when you're 18. So all of my friends were sort of turning 18 and they were inviting me to parties and going out drinking and going out clubbing. I just simply couldn't do it. My, my body just couldn't do it. I was just always picking up infections and I was having to make excuses to, for why I wasn't going out and they couldn't understand it. They just thought that I was being a bad friend. So I lost a lot of friends during that time because they didn't know the person that I was becoming. I didn't know the person I was becoming. They just thought that I was becoming more depressed. I wasn't fun to be around anymore. I was mad because I'd had to like obviously give up my swimming for me I didn't want to go out in public because I couldn't wear the clothes that I wanted to wear because I didn't feel confident in them I didn't want to look skinny and I seemed to look skinny in everything and at 18 years old you should be in the prime you know prime of your time and feeling confident and going out and enjoying yourself and I just wasn't and I just really began to isolate myself and I, I was depressed. I got into a really, really bad stage where I didn't want to live anymore. 
And I think I had probably, I'd say a good sort of two, three years where I admittedly felt the victim. I, I, I pitied myself. I was in a really, really bad cycle, which I, I get so mad at myself for at, at this time because I'm just like, Sophie, like, get a grip. There's more to life than pitying yourself. But at 18, you do really feel like your world's falling apart because swimming had been my life from the age of seven and everybody was kind of going through university now they knew their career path I didn't have time to have hobbies I didn't have time to have other sort of routes that I could go down because swimming it was just swimming 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 it consumed my life completely that I didn't have that sort of I don't know extra routes and plan b c or d I just had plan a so I just felt completely lost I didn't know where to turn I didn't know where to even begin so swimming was your identity. It was everything to you. It was how you defined yourself. And as you lost that identity, the people that you, exp you would expect to support you as you were going through a transformation weren't there for you either. Your parents started to doubt you. Your friends started to doubt you. Your former teammates started to doubt you. You were all alone while you were going through this identity transformation. Yeah, so because I wasn't performing to the highest standard that I'm used to, um, my coach kind of like didn't want to know. I was no use to him anymore, which really, really upset me because obviously I was very young at the time. So he was like my father figure and losing kind of his support was soul destroying to me. I wasn't seeing my swimming friends as much because obviously I wasn't in the pool. And as we all know, swimming consumes your life. So they weren't socializing outside the pool. That was where we did our sort of meetups was at the pool so I wasn't seeing them very often and all of my school friends were going to uni exploring their career paths or going out and socializing and living life I, I just couldn't be a part of that either so I felt completely lost and my mum my mum has always been my diamond rock she has supported me through thick and thin but even she couldn't understand what was going through me like with what was going on because I couldn't explain it to her so I fully understand why she couldn't explain it to family either because she wasn't getting anything back from me because I was completely shutting down. So that was made it very hard. And she had like um, other family members on her back saying, you need to get Sophie sorted. What's wrong with her? Why she had to give up something? Why is this happening? Why is that happening? And just as I couldn't explain to her, she couldn't explain to them. So I think she then started getting frustrated with the situation which made her like sometimes have real like deep talks with me and she was like Sophie what is going on are you sure you're not depressed are you sure this is not going on are you sure you're just not like upset about losing your swimming and and that upset me because she's like my best friend and my diamond rock so for her to be questioning me I was just like oh my gosh like I don't know myself nobody knows me and I was just completely at a loss so now Sophie Let's talk about your medical journey and how the symptoms developed and what doctors you were seeing to try to help you through this process. Because as you are going through your identity crisis and as your family was starting to lose faith in you and as your friends were losing faith in you, of course, everyone was looking for an explanation and I'm assuming you weren't getting that explanation from the medical community. So talk to us about what doctors you went to as your symptoms developed and what symptoms you were bringing to the doctors at the time that you were seeing them yeah so 
um, my local GPs were so like they were just such hard work obviously every time I was going in I, I started sort of with water infections sore throats and migraines from the get-go and so I went in and um, they just thought it was like depression related that maybe I wasn't like eating properly or drinking enough they would just put me on medication to help with the depression help with um all of the pain that I was like suffering and just put me on sort of antibiotics like nearly every week when I had a water infection and it was just getting it was getting silly and I would they would then say like oh well you know give you give you permission to go and see a consultant and see what they have to say and you know we were paying so much to see like private consultants consultations and go to consultants because we weren't getting anything from the local doctors which maybe me I was feeling very very guilty because none of us want our family to be paying out lots of money to go and see consultants to then not really get any answers back and all the tests that they were doing like on my bladder and on my stomach and on like scanning for my migraines to see if there was any tumors there or anything like that they were all coming back clear so there was no answers there was no kind of right this is what it is we can solve this with this protocol that protocol we can give you that medication there was just nothing and i was just left in the dark so then we'd have to start again so you go back to the gps and um, the local doctors and be and say right well i've still got these symptoms i've now actually got food intolerances on top and I'm losing a lot of weight I can't tolerate wheat can't tolerate gluten and they just look at you and see you as a girl and just think you've got you've got a problem here um, and that's soul destroying because I'm just like I'm so used to being a strong athlete do you not think that this mentally is taking such a toll on me that I've, I've literally I'm losing my physique that was so strong and my mindset is now completely being destroyed by the symptoms that I'm going through because I can't get on top of them and I'm so used to getting on top and bouncing back that I just found it really really difficult and I was just getting nowhere with the doctors I was getting nowhere with the consultants and I, I really I was at my wit's end and before I got my diagnosis I remember my mum saying she's just like this is kind of the end of the road you know we've been going on for this now it was literally like five years back to back, weekly going to see the doctors, weekly going to see consultants. And she was like, Sophie, like, I, I just don't know what else we can explore because we've literally explored everything. Well, Sophie, you were going to doctor after doctor after doctor, week after week after week, and you weren't getting a diagnosis, which of course now added to the doubt that your mother had, even your mother, you, who you were calling your diamond rock. She was doubting yeah. you. Because, because the doctors were telling her, there's nothing wrong with you. So you, you were going through this emotional transformation. You, were, you had lost your identity as, a, as, as an internationally ranked athlete. You'd lost your friends. And now even your mother is doubting you because the doctors are saying, there's nothing wrong with her physically. She's just emotionally unhealthy, which on some level was true. You were emotionally unhealthy because you were going yeah. through this terrible transformation with no explanation, but it really was a symptom rather than what was wrong with you. Yes, definitely. Um, and, and that's what makes it so difficult. So Sophie, were you doubting yourself even more because the medical community was failing you and failing to give you a diagnosis? I think so, yeah. I kind of, 
yeah, I started doubting myself big time. I was, I was upset because I didn't really know how I could make this better. I wanted to make it better. And as we all do, we, we don't want to put the strain on the doctors. They're already so overwhelmed with what, you know, all the different diseases out there and chronic illnesses and things like that. That if we can treat at home and we can treat ourselves, we want to do that because obviously we don't want to be at the doctors all the time. So I, I was trying to do everything that I could to try and rebuild. And for me, I obviously I couldn't seem to shake off these symptoms. So I started trying to look at my life and how I was going to rebuild my life from obviously giving up my career. I couldn't work a nine to five because the symptoms were so severe and I was always poorly that no employer would employ me. So I was having to try and pick up skills, like start baking, start cooking, just really try and broaden my horizon to see what I enjoyed and what my passions were. Because like I said, I just, I hadn't in my childhood been able to explore these kind of things. And so I was trying to do that for myself to see where I could go in life and where it was going to lead me so that maybe I could start to rebuild in that way and hopefully try and solve it but this wasn't helping at all I still was having really really bad symptoms and I couldn't explain them and I couldn't deal with letting my family down it was getting to the point where publicly people were saying oh Sophie you're the swimmer and I had to explain that I wasn't swimming anymore um, I had to give up, I wasn't doing anything, I had these health problems, they saw me publicly decline, and that for my family was, they, they were obviously a bit embarrassed by me, so at that point I thought, right, um, I need to move out because I can't deal with the expectations that they're putting on me, because I, I just, I need to be able to hibernate because I, I can't cope with this. So it was basically, I moved out on my own, and I used my house in a completely wrong way in the fact that I used to just hibernate from the world. And then I used to work for my dad part-time. So I'd go into work and I'd be all bubbly. I'd be the normal Sophie that everybody knew, even if inside I was dying because I didn't feel comfortable in myself. I always kind of tried to act like I was normal, put the brave face on. But when I got back home, I'd break down. And I'd just go into isolation again. I would suffer really bad anxiety attacks. There was times when I'd have to go food shopping and I'd be going down to the door, locking it, unlocking it, going back upstairs, locking it, unlocking it. And it'd take me about four or five times to actually go shopping and get out the door because I'd built up the anxiety within me. I didn't know how I was going to face people. I didn't know how I was going to talk to people. I just I just lost the whole kind of connection with the world and I just didn't know what was going on. I was trying to function and on the outside I was, but on the inside I, I really wasn't. So Sophie, what brought you from the place where you were physically in a really bad place? You were emotionally in a really bad place. You were psychologically in a really bad place. You were socially in a bad place. You were financially in a bad place. You were, you were living on your own by yourself, almost in a cave, and then you finally yeah. get a diagnosis. How did you get from that really terrible point in your life to a diagnosis? So obviously my weight carried on declining. And because I wasn't living at home anymore, my parents were sort of asking me, like, was I eating? Was I cooking properly? Was I taking care of myself? Because 
by looks of me, I wasn't to them. And so I was like, yes, you know, I am eating, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And they were just thinking that they need to kind of look into this food intolerances in a bit more depth because they they didn't understand if it was a real intolerance, you know, the to- intolerances were real or not. So I went to my local hospital where they did an intolerance test. And um, there's a few things that kind of flagged up, but I obviously started to save my other symptoms so like sort of migraines sore throats um sort of chills a lot of the time cold after eating low body temperature and the consultant there said to me you need to kind of look into chronic fatigue syndrome and see if that's something that's connected to all of this because the range of symptoms you're having kind of seem to run along those lines and I'd never heard of chronic fatigue before so he gave me a leaflet and um, I went back to my consultant and he just said, you're going to have to travel, but I know someone who specialises in chronic fatigue at the other side of the country. So at that point, my mum was just like, right, yeah, let's just go with it. We'll see what he has to say, see what this comes, you know, what comes of this. We'll just try it. And so we travelled sort of five hours across the country to go and see this consultant. And he spent two hours with me literally going through everything. I'd had to fill out a weekly meal plan, um, temperature check, symptom check, you know, pain from zero to 10 each day, what kind of pain I was having. I had to, it was so in depth and I'd never done this before. So I thought this was really, really good. And he spent two hours with me going through all of the travel that I'd ever taken, swimming background, all my symptoms from when they started to how I was feeling now, my weight, everything like that, took everything into, into account. And he just said to me, look, you need to do some tests. I think I know what it is, but I'm not going to say what it is until you've had these tests done. So I was like, okay. Um, and I was going to Cuba at the time. So he just said, right, do the test, send them off. By the time you come back from Cuba, we'll have the results. You'll have to come back down um, and we'll go through them. So I was like, fine, fine, do the test, not an issue. So I did loads and loads of bloods um, that were sent to Germany, army labs. And I went to Cuba, came back, and on the train, I just, I didn't know what to expect. I kind of, I wasn't getting hopeful. I kind of thought that I'd probably be in the same position as I always am. And that they'd come back clear. They was going to have sort of no real insight into what was going on. But I was trying to just keep level-headed. And I was quite nervous because I, in, within me, I was kind of like, well, what, what if nothing does come back? What if nothing does show up? And what? Because this is literally the end of the line. So I went in and um, he sat me down and he just said, he just looked at me and he just said, I don't know how you've managed to get here today. And I kind of, I kind of like looked at my mum and I was like, well, what do you mean? You know, like I travel a lot, I, you know, I'm kind of, I try and be as physical as I can because I'm, I'm an athlete, you know, this is how I am. And he just said, you know, you're very, very weak and you're very, very poorly. And he went through my results saying, you know, I had Coxsackie attacking my heart, my pancreas, and then I had um, Lyme and really, really strong positive Lyme as well. And I had never, ever heard of Lyme disease before. So I thought, great, 
like just for a split second I was like great I've got a diagnosis we can we can deal with this you know treatment get it done get it sorted I'll be back on track with no time um and he wasn't like he didn't sort of go into depth about how serious Lyme disease is he just kind of said what organs it was currently attacking what kind of treatment process we needed to go through which was antibiotics at sort of to start it off um, and again I just thought right a few kind of weeks in hospital antibiotics I can do that easy not an issue um, it was kind of only sort of when he turned to my mum and he just said like you know it's, it's, it's attacking a heart it's attacking all of our main organs and my dad has heart disease and he's lost 50% of his heart because of a heart attack. So I burst into tears, my mum burst into tears because that was kind of like, oh my God. And she realised how serious this was because obviously we nearly lost my dad only a few years prior to this. So that was hard on me as well because for so many years I suffered with so many ridiculous like a shopping list full of symptoms that I couldn't understand I couldn't explain it to my mum everyone was downplaying it I was just a drama queen I was just depressed and now it's coming to it's really quite serious so Sophie let's talk about the diagnosis and the impact that it had on you and all the different areas that we had just talked about so you finally get a diagnosis how do you feel about all of the other doctors you had seen before who weren't able to give you a diagnosis? And why do you think they failed at getting you to a point where you had a diagnosis? At first, I was like, okay. Because um, my consultant said, right, you need to go back to your local doctors because you need weekly bloods so that we can monitor your um, immune system and we can monitor all of your sort of organs so we know where we're at. So I said, like, fine, not a problem. So, of course, I went back to my doctors and they hadn't seen me for a few years and they couldn't believe it, the amount of weight that I lost. And I presented them with my arm in lab results and they basically told me they had been done abroad, they were false, they were fake. There's no such thing as Lyme disease. I was making it up and I was anorexic and I had an eating disorder and that I needed to go into an eating disorder clinic. And that was just, I was, I was so mad because I just felt like I'd, you know, for years, for five years, I'd gone in time and time again with different, different symptoms and saying that, I, you know, I was really upset. I was getting more and more symptoms. I was losing more and more weight and they did nothing. And now I, I, I obviously seen a consultant, got results, had tests on broad. They just didn't, they didn't know because I don't think they really knew what Lyme disease was either. And I think what's sad about the medical community is if they feel like they can't like give you medication or they don't have an answer, they don't want to know. They, they shut you down and they call you crazy and push it back on you. And that is not the way it should be. But I was basically um, told that I was crazy and they, they tried to section me at that point. Let's stay with that for a second. So, you went to a, a specialist, the doctor prescribed a test that demonstrated objectively that you had Lyme disease. You go back yeah. to your local doctors and you expect that they're now going to be able to help you with this new insight. But rather than help you with this new insight, what they said was, you're still crazy. 
you're you're suffering from a psychological disorder that's presenting as um, as anorexia, and we still believe that you're crazy. Yeah. How did that make you feel? How did that make you feel when you had this hope that you now had a diagnosis that was going to result in you getting better, and you were being again mistreated by your local doctors? They basically said to me, "Right, you need to see a nutritionist." So I was like, "Okay, perfect. I'll do that. Not an issue." Um, at this point, I was pretty much plant-based anyway, um, because it was just how I used to be able to eat that wasn't affecting me or heightening any of the reactions. So I thought that I was sort of eating a balanced diet. And being a swimmer, I did used to eat quite a lot of carbs, so I thought that was the right way of eating. And I'd seen a lot of nutritionists in the past when I started with the intolerances and started losing weight. And they'd all said to me that I have a balanced diet. My diet was really, really good. So I wasn't like phased by this. I just thought, okay, perfect. I'll just do this, keep them happy. And basically I was like joked into like seeing a nutritionist that actually turned out to be um, a psychiatrist. And he was basically there to prove that I was crazy and to section me right there and then. And it was supposed to be a half an hour appointment and I was in there for two hours. And at the end, he said to me, he said, I can't say that you're crazy because you, your mind is completely there and you know exactly what you're talking about. You're eating, you're doing this, you're doing that. You're fully aware of what's going on. So I can't section you. And I came away and I was just, I was so mad because again, like, they weren't being transparent with me at the doctors. And I just thought all the time that I've been asking for help and I've never done anything wrong by them, that now I just felt completely portrayed. Um, and, you know, I still to this day, I've never, ever got the report back from them saying that I wasn't crazy and that, you know, I needed mental health help. Um, they just, they said that the, re the report didn't exist, even though I know the psychologist wrote it up and gave it to my doctor. But so I Sophie, then... let's focus on that for one more second. So when you say section in the US, I'm not, we don't have that term. Does that mean that they were going okay. to institutionalize you or put you, take, take you yes. out of your community and put you somewhere in a hospital? Yes. Yeah, so basically um, if you're sectioned, it's the doctors kind of, they override you. So sometimes obviously people can go and they say, right, um, I need mental health, health help. I'm, I don't feel secure. I'm depressed. I'm down, you know, all of that. And you can go in voluntary into hospital and they'll treat you and you can discharge at any time. But if they section you, they obviously put you in there and they can't allow you to leave until they feel that you are safe to go back into the community. So you went to a specialist who gave you the proper testing and gave you a diagnosis of Lyme disease, you went back yeah. to the local doctors believing you were going to get some assistance with your physical condition and your, and your medical condition. And as it turns out, what you had to do is battle to retain your freedom and not be sectioned or put into a mental hospital. Yes, basically. Now, do you believe the diagnosis that you finally did get helped you to defend yourself and prevent you from being put in a hospital? Yes, to a certain extent, the fact that after I came out of that meeting and I knew that they couldn't section me, I, I then could say, right, well, I'm having treatment, whether 
the local doctors are behind me or not, I'm going to go and have this treatment and see where we go. And that's when I started my antibiotic treatment. But that was, I was also not tolerating antibiotics very well, as um, my weight was still like not really kind of picking up. And the doctors were just on at me again. They just said, basically, you've had treatment for Lyme now um, and you're not getting better. So we are like this close to sectioning you again. So at this point, like my mum's very, very upset because she knows exactly what's going on, but she doesn't want me to be in a place where she can't get me out of hospital or be in a place that I shouldn't be in. So she said, so you need to go involuntary and just see if they can help you just gain some weight at least, see what they have um, that could help you. So Wait, as, Sophie, like, I, I need to stop you here because this is a really important point. So you had your Lyme disease diagnosis. Your mother was aware of the Lyme disease diagnosis. Your mother recognized that you were now in a place where you needed to be treated differently because you had Lyme disease and she encouraged you to go into a voluntary institutionalization? Yes. And at first I was so upset um, about it because again, I thought that I was losing all of my support. I was going into somewhere where like I literally didn't belong, but Obviously now I'm so thankful that she did it because it made me a stronger person. But at the time I just couldn't understand it at all. And I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't know how I was going to survive this. And I was at my lowest of lows. I was really low. I just, I was like, I can't do this. I can't keep fighting as proof that I'm not very well. And people like believe what, what's going on. But yeah, I did. I did agree to do it. She just said to, she said, look, so I've supported you all of these years, this is the one thing that I'm asking you to do for me. And I'll do anything for my family and especially my mom. So I knew I had to do it. And it was, it was just the worst. And thank God I went involuntary because I don't know what I'd do if I would, had been sectioned because I would have become so, so, so poorly. I did two weeks and they put me on a liquid diet which within a week I've lost six pounds and a further six pounds when I was already a critical weight as it was. Um, they then were giving me like eight nuts on a plate and then leaving me for two days with no food. I, my oxygen levels were going down. I was having really bad chest pain and they were just telling me to take one paracetamol and that I'd have to see a doctor in 72 hours. I was on suicide watch because they didn't believe that I wouldn't do anything. It was awful. Um, and obviously I'm not in the same frame of mind as the girls that were in there because they were, they, they were anorexic and they did have an eating disorder. So they were all kind of at different stages of their treatment in there. And they were all getting meals and crying over their meals, not eating it, trying to like push it around the plate. I was like sat there with like nothing absolutely starving and I just did they, they, they just didn't talk they didn't want to talk or communicate and I just felt like I you know I was used to being an alien in my own body but now I was like an alien in this world like I couldn't connect with these girls um, and I, I was kind of lucky because towards the end the staff really kind of got to know me and knew me as a person 
So they enjoyed coming to sit on my table because I was the only one that would kind of speak and be like bubbly and be upbeat, whereas all the other girls were kind of crying and things like that. And I did try and help the girls in any way I could because I didn't feel like they were getting the level of support they should have been in there. They were just basically like being force fed, but there was no real kind of confidence boosting and self-esteem boosting, I'd like to say. So I, you know, when they were doing the sort of activities, I'd sort of go around and be like, oh my gosh, like you're doing so well, you're doing really well. Like you've got such a talent for that. Why don't you start an online, an online shop and sell your paintings and drawings? Because they're really, really good. And they appreciated that. They kind of opened up to me towards the end. But that was kind of my lifeline really was kind of using this in a positive way to kind of build myself and understand how I could help people and kind of relate to people on, on different levels. But yeah, they were they were awful to me in there. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. That every day they had me in. Because obviously you'll know the NHS, they pay for our health and taxpayers pay in and that goes towards our health. So they the doctors in there have to say that you're in there for that reason for anorexia and nothing else because they can't be paying out money for someone that shouldn't be there so they had me in every day trying to like break down about how I felt about my body how I felt about food what my issues were and I'd just be like can you just feed me please because I'm really really hungry you put me on a liquid diet I've not eaten for like 10 days now I've had eight nuts on a plate I'm losing my mind and the dietitian she was like you're getting everything that you need, you're fine. And I wasn't, I was on 800 calories on sort of um, liquid drink a day and that was it. I was literally climbing the walls. I was going insane. I was losing my marbles completely. So, so Sophie, let, let's stay with this for a second because I, I'm just, I'm blown away. You, you, you have a Lyme disease diagnosis. You finally mm-hmm. get treatment for Lyme disease. And, and, and just share with us what treatment you received before you went to the hospital you, you, for the anorexia. How long were you given antibiotics and what type of antibiotics were you given? So I was giving, um, I, can't, like, I can't remember what antibiotic it was, but I was given two weeks worth of antibiotics. And um, well, that was the plan anyway. And I went into hospital on the first day and they put the antibiotics into me and my body started reacting. I, I literally, I thought I was going to die. I could feel my throat, like daggers down my throat. Nothing could touch me. without it feeling like there was daggers going into me. And they literally had to turn off the antibiotic IV and flush it out of my system. And it took about three hours to kind of stabilize me back again. So that at that point, they just said that my body was too weak. They were going to have to give me sort of vitamin C um, liver flushes, vitamin D and antivirals instead because I, I couldn't tolerate the antibiotics because my body was obviously so overrun with infections that I just it was just going into shock. And that really scared my mum as well because she'd gone out to get a sandwich, go and go, go and get a lunch, had left me all hooked up, I was fine, came back, the alarm's going, like I was in so much pain, I was crying, I was screaming out in pain, thinking I was gonna die. And for me, like I've got high pain thresholds. So for me to be like creating like that, she just had never seen me in that way. So she was like panicking. Um, and that was really, really scary. But I did two weeks worth of that. 
And then they came home and they said, look, you're going to have to treat orally because your body is quite weak and you're not used to such intense treatments because you've got a lot going on in your body. So I started with um, keeping on a plant-based diet that was suggested that I stay keeping fresh, like don't start adding toxins in that can aggravate the body, really eat fresh and clean and try and take sort of vitamins vitamin C, vitamin D, magnesium, magnesium, those kind of things just to add those into the diet. Bloods every week to make sure that my immune system was relatively okay and just to monitor it and my organs were okay as well. And I did that for sort of four months before going into hospital. So did the antibiotics and then the alternative treatments that you used between when you got your diagnosis and when you went to the hospital help you at all? No, not really. The, the vitamins weren't boosting my immune system like they should be. I don't know if it's the same in the US, but basically your white blood cell count should be between 4 and 11 point. And mine's normally like 2.6, which is quite low. So the the aim of the game was to literally kind of boost that so that I could fight off the, any infections that I was kind of having on top of my Lyme disease. Because like I was saying, I was having recurring water infections, throat infections, things like that, that were just added pressure. So the whole point of the whole sort of taking extra vitamins was to boost those white blood cell count right up to kind of normal level so that I was kind of being able to fight those off better. But it just wasn't sort of moving from that two-point mark. So you had about four weeks of treatment before you went into the hospital, and you believe that although the doctors seem to identify the importance of boosting your immune system so that you can fight off both the Lyme disease and the opportunistic illnesses that were taking off in your body, they really didn't successfully aid you in that. You then went into the hospital, and for how long were you in the hospital dealing with the anorexia diagnosis? Um, two weeks before, uh, well, after week one and I'd lost weight, obviously my mum was really mad because she'd put me in there expecting me to gain weight and feel better. And because it was having a really, really bad effect, and it wasn't just like one or two pounds, it was six pounds, which is like half a stone in just a week. So she was panicking because I was already at a critical low weight as it was. So she got onto my consultant um, he was treating my Lyme and she just said, look, they've I've made Sophie go in and hope that they would help, but she's losing more and more weight. They're not taking note of her. Her oxygen levels are dropping to a dangerously low level, but they won't give her oxygen. Her temperature's going through the booth because it can't modify it. They're feeding her sugar and it's sending her blood sugar up and down because as we all know, Lyme feeds on sugar. So they were giving me sugary things and it was going like shooting up and then they couldn't understand why it was dropping so low so quickly but it was because I had so many infections feeding on the sugar so they couldn't understand that so that was not really helping because they just kept giving me sugary things. So it was actually making it worse so you're now being treated for a disease you didn't have and because you were being treated for a disease you didn't have it was making the disease that you did have worse. Yes so my consultant said to my mom, he just turned around and said, she needs to come out. She needs to come out now. So at that point, I'd been in there two weeks and my mom said, I'm coming to get you. Pack all your stuff up. Don't say anything to the doctors. We're just charging you. I'm saying that your consultant down um, south has said 
that this is not helping you. You've lost more and more weight and you've been on a liquid diet now for 10 days and not feeding you properly. And that was the whole point of this, that they were supposed to be feeding you because they didn't believe that you ate and you know, you're not getting any better. So she came, we packed up my stuff and the day I walked out of the hospital, I honest to God, I didn't think I was going to walk out there alive because I wasn't allowed to walk. I wasn't allowed to go outside because I wasn't seemed as able to do that and safe to do that. I hadn't proven myself to be capable of being able to walk outside. So I hadn't been outside for two weeks. So just to see fresh air and the, the sky again when I've had so many symptoms and I was losing so many weight so much weight and day by day I was losing again more of myself that I just thought I was going to die in there so that was amazing to kind of come out and I saw life in such a different way and at that point I was so much more grateful for my family I moved back in with my mom because my mom said you're not going back home you're too sick you need to move in back back with me and at first I was like, oh, but I want my independence back. I want Sophie back. And she's like, Sophie, you're not well enough. And I've, I've never moved back into my own place. I just, since being at hospital and being alone, I can't be alone in the same way anymore. So, I've, But of I've, course, Sophie, part of the reason why you moved out of your house is because you weren't getting the support from your family that you needed. Now you went yeah. through this, you went through this experience of first you were, you received a proper diagnosis and then you did in fact honor your mother's request to go into a hospital that didn't treat you for what you needed to be treated for, but you had now regained some faith, not only in yourself, but your mother now started to trust you and started to accept that there were some mistakes made in the way that she was either helping you or not helping you. And now you were able to go forward with a healing path. Yes, definitely. And I think what really hit my mom was when my consultant rang up when I, I, I just got home and he just said to me, he said, you don't have to take this treatment, but I advise you do. And it was eight weeks of IV infusions to repair the cell membrane because he said that the damage that they've done, like not feeding me, giving then giving me things that I was intolerant to because they didn't believe my intolerances had done so much damage to my body that I was now really a lot weaker. And that was coming out as £13,000. And I, I just kind of looked at my mom and I said, I'm really sorry, but I just, I, you know, I've just gone through that awful experience. A, I don't want you paying out for that kind of money. And B, I, I just want to be home with my family for Christmas because it was around Christmas as well because I didn't think I was going to be able to spend Christmas with them. I didn't even think I was going to get out alive at this point. So I just wanted to have Christmas with them and be with them. But that was really, that was really hard on my mum because she then began to realise the kind of damage that was, that was done and that this, my health was really, really serious and we were towing a line and I had to be really careful and I was becoming a lot more grateful and I was a lot more understanding that there was no, there was going to be no quick fix in this game. I was probably never going to get the Sophie back that I expected me to be I had to adapt and adjust to the body that I was now in I had to adapt to the life that I was now living and I had to make the best of it because if I didn't I was just going to live in regret and I couldn't play the self-pity anymore because that was just adding fuel to the fire when it came to my depression 
I had to be influential. I had to be empowered, uh, empowering other people and empowering myself along the journey. And it took me a long time, but that's when I started working on myself. And I'd cry behind so many doors before I'd go out in public. But um, in public, I'd always put a face on and I'd always put a brave face on it. And people then began to kind of appreciate how strong I was. And they'd come up to me and they'd say, oh my gosh, Sophie, like you're doing so well and you, you're they're so positive about this. And I wouldn't come out if I was in your shoes. And that was when I realized that I needed to start up in my game and, and, and being kind of using this journey and my story and what I'd been through and build on that strength to kind of create a new life and create a life that I'm going to look back on and not be full of regret or think, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that, or that I'd sat and wasted time. I wanted to make the most of the time that I had because I was realizing that it was very, very precious. And never do you think it in your 20s that you're going to be faced with this or that your time is pretty limited because a lot of your friends and other family members are living life in the fast lane you know they're starting their careers they're earning a great wage they're buying houses they're getting married they're having children and you feel like completely way behind and you don't know how to find yourself so that was kind of when I had to really dig deep and start building myself up and learning this whole situation so sophie did you ultimately take the treatment that your specialist had recommended you said that it was going to cost thirteen thousand pounds did you undergo that treatment no i never underwent that treatment i check in with him every three months and he tries to treat me at home and um, because he fully understands that it's a long sort of travel time for me to get down there and he always says to me he's like your body's too weak I don't want you doing travel unless it's really really necessary and he knows the effect that antibiotics have on me so he tries not to treat with antibiotics he tries to use herbal treatments now last year I started with really really bad gut problems which I'm still ongoing with and I was talking him through my symptoms and he just said we need you to go on antiviral IVs because we think that you've got viruses attacking um, your brain, your gut and your heart right now through your vagus nerve. So I had to go through antivirals and I did a week of antiviral treatment, inpatient treatment, and that was hard. It was very, very difficult. And again, um, it had to be slowed down because my, my kidneys started to struggle. And I went to see him a few weeks after to see how I progressed and see how the treatment had gone and he said that I needed more really but my throat had completely closed up and the symptoms that I was going through my body was reacting that I was too weak at that time to have more antivirals so I kind of put a pause on that and he wanted me to go back to my local doctors and try and have more um, investigation and more scans into my gut issues which is where I'm at now and that's ongoing at present. Sophie, can you share with us what treatments you've undergone and how effective they were for you and which you would and would not recommend to other people who are on a Lyme disease journey? So a lot of people have a lot of success on antibiotics and I think 
at first you have to try them to see if your body is weak enough to kind of take them oh, sorry not not weak um, too weak to take them but can adapt to them but then sometimes it, it doesn't always work for people so if it doesn't work then I don't think that like swapping different antibiotics and, and changing those around is the right way to go I obviously treat from home and I treat like like using diet and do herbs and that works for me that kind of keeps me stable to a certain extent now I I fully aware that at some point there's going to be come a time when it doesn't work the same and it doesn't have that effect and I'm probably going to have to have a more dramatic um treatment protocol but at the moment I'm just trying to keep positive and keep that way of, of doing things I have also like I said had antiviral infusions that have helped um when it comes to any viruses that I seem to have picked up again I can only seem to tolerate sort of four or five days of infusions before my body kind of says no more um so again everybody's different some people can be on them for months or just a couple more weeks than I can it's it's very much you have to kind of test things out and see what works for you don't get into the comparison game and because comparison and comparing is toxic is comparison is a horrible cycle to get into you have to listen to what your consultant is telling you listen to all the advice that they're giving you test and try them out like I said it might not work for you so like for me I tried antibiotics my body went into shock I had to be taken off the antibiotics after a couple of hours I tried it I gave it a shot I knew it wasn't for me but for other people they can be on it for three four months and it works for them it stabilizes their body they can have a better form of um, life and they're a bit more stable they can do more and that's great and I think You've got to listen to what your doctor is telling you. You've also got to um, be open-minded and see that there's a range of different treatments out there. We're not lucky enough yet to have a sort of one effective treatment that works for everybody. It is a bit like a Russian roulette game. You have to try. Um, so think about the natural ways of doing things. Think about, obviously, antibiotic treatment. I've had... Um, vitamins through an IV drip when I've really needed them when my body's needed a boost like instantly and that's really really helped that's helped just give me that energy back to fight any infections that I was going through and um, because a lot of patients that go through Lyme have bad guts so they're not always absorbing the oral vitamins the same as a normal person would so IVs are great for that um, but also I think we have to be aware that all this costs money and I know a lot of people that have had to obviously sell their homes or they've had to um you know sell their businesses and things like that to, to fund their treatment so I think it's really key to be wise about where you're spending your money make sure that you have a lot of advice don't just go into it without researching it yourself it's we're very very quick to neglect and dismiss our bodies and when you become unwell you have to start checking in with yourself on such a deeper level than you ever thought you would have to do so I think it's very very important to do that and start checking it in and realize that you know your body better than anybody else so even if your family and friends are saying that you should go with this treatment you should be doing that treatment 
if you don't feel like it's right for you, you need to speak up about it. Don't feel like you have to do anything. I think that's very key. And again, don't be looking at what everybody else is doing and think that that's going to solve you and help you get better overnight. Because I think, again, we've gone through so many years of unknown and not knowing where we stand, not knowing how we feel, not getting a treatment that if someone says to you, right, do a week's worth of antibiotic treatment and you'll be able to go walking every day, you'll be able to feel better in yourself, your mood will feel better. You think, great, oh my God, a week. I can do a week, that's easy. I can be fine as rain next week. And when that doesn't work, emotionally, that is so hard to digest because you may have seen Sarah down the road do the same treatment and she may have had a great um, effect and, and take to it really, really well. So that's really, really hard to digest. So I think it's, it's don't go in with um, sort of that mindset that this is going to be a quick fix. This is going to fix you. This is going to be open-minded, be realistic. Think about um, everything that you have on the table. Look at different options and see what works for you financially. Remember that being with your family and friends is very key as well. A lot of people think about going to treatment for like four or five months at a time, but they miss their family and things like that. So I think you have to balance that up as well because, like I said, you only get one family. You only get um, to spend the time, your time with them once. So we all want to spend as much cherished time as we can with them as well. Sophie, I, I think you've just given some really, really great advice, and I'd like you to now pivot over to talking about how you're now a different person as a consequence of this experience that you've had. You started out this journey as a very self-centered, athletic young woman who was pursuing a career as a professional or at least as an international athlete. And now you're in a very different place and in a very beautiful place. I'd like you to share with our listeners what you're doing now and how this experience that you had, whether it be with the challenges that you've had with your doctors or the challenges you've had with your family, or even the challenges that you saw other people going through when you had that time when you were hospitalized, how did that all change you so that you're now doing the work that you're doing? I think it's it's made me such a stronger person and it's made me become I, I know now that you can't judge somebody on their outer shell or really see them at service level. You need to dig deeper. And I think as a society we are all really worried about kind of getting into like sort of muddy water when it kind of comes into asking people about their emotions and how they're feeling and um, because you don't want to upset them and you don't want to start opening up wounds but I think um, when you become ill and you go through all of this you realize that other people are going through this as well so being raw real and um, making your story relatable for them is something that really brings comfort to them it helps them it's like a lifeline and it really inspires them to do the same. And with that, they're able to be more open with their family and friends. They're able to be more raw and real. They're, they're able to be not so sort of brave faced to the world. They're able to be like, just show them crying, getting emotional, not dealing with the pain and being okay with it. And that is really, really important because that helps people understand. The thing, I think the main lesson that I kind of got was that I was expecting people to understand how I was feeling, even though I didn't understand how I was feeling and I couldn't explain how I was, um, you know, 
feeling either. And you can't expect someone to understand if you're not willing to try and allow them to understand. So you've got to give them the skills and the tools to kind of be able to do that, to have their support. So I think that's really key. And I think like, you know, I went through that period where I really closed off. I really isolated myself. And I know now because that was a dark place and I never, ever want to get back there. I've learned from that. And I know that being open, being realistic, talking to my friends and family, not shutting them off, actually telling them the truth. If I don't like feel well, I'm upfront about it. I don't just say, oh, you know, I'm fine. I'll be fine in a minute. I just, just need a second. Because reality is I don't need a second. I probably need a week's rest. And um, so I think being realistic with them, they appreciate that more as well. But I think it's it's empowering to other people because they see you be positive. They see you dealing with things. They see how um, your friends and family get behind you and support you when you're open. And that gives them confidence to be open and supportive as well. And that's where I really wanted to channel my energy because I really wanted to start helping soothe the hearts that were sort of um, hurting so badly from this disease and from chronic illness in general because it, it's hard it's it's very very hard it really is and every day is unpredictable it's a roller coaster we go through a, a roller coaster of emotions a roller coaster of physical symptoms and it's hard to adjust to and like I was saying a lot of people that have the chronic illness were high flyers they were very successful people before this and it's a lot to go from um, 100 to zero, literally in a space of a couple of months. It's an adjustment. It's very, very hard. Let's talk about how you're bringing these lessons to other people who are suffering from chronic illness, who have not had the experiences you've had. You have a beautiful Instagram page where you're being very open about your journey and sharing your journey with other people. You have a podcast and you also have a business where you're assisting people who need to travel in the face of their chronic illness. So you can, can you talk about all the different tools you're using to reach out to the world and share your life lessons? Yeah, so I use Instagram as kind of a, like a personal documentation of like my journey and my story, but I also want to be um, really positive on there and uplifting and give people tools to begin thinking about maybe areas of their life they may have not considered. So things like gratitude, things like um, creating kind of getting creative with skills and hobbies, trying to take up new things that can be like mindful for calming themselves, just things like that, that we can easily adapt into our lives that can be really, really like life changing. So I love using my Instagram for that sort of side of things my podcast I love using just like this podcast to share stories because people relate to stories people find comfort in them and that's where they gain their lessons they go back they take notes and they adapt those lessons that they take from the podcast into their own life and start building and that's really really great to see and I love like hearing back from people say that they've listened to someone's story they found it inspirational they think that they're going to go in this direction in their life now or they're going to create this skill and expand their skill set and that's really really great to hear so I gain a lot of inspiration from that as well and then with my travel business I love travel and it's a big passion of mine and the whole becoming ill really really put a kind of um, halt onto it and for a lot of years I didn't do a lot of traveling and 
mainly because I wasn't well enough, but also because I didn't want to lose another passion. I'd lost swimming and that had been soul destroying. I had seen the, you know, how badly it affected me that I didn't want to go through that again. So I kind of put it on hold. And then I went on a cruise last year with my family because my mum was saying that, you know, I needed to go. They wanted to make memories with me. And I reluctantly went. I didn't want to go because I didn't feel well enough to go. And I loved it. They accommodated like for me and they went above and beyond. And I had such an amazing time that I came back and I said, like, I need to do more of this. I need to get people traveling. I need to get them exploring the world beyond their front door. There's more to life than being housebound, being bedridden. There's a world outside their like, front gate to explore. And they need to be doing that because we only get one shot at life. And companies now are going above and beyond to accommodate for people who you know have disabilities or have limitations. They want to look after you. They're your customer. They're going to go above and beyond. So nothing is too much trouble. Trouble, And that's what I really wanted to learn. I wanted to learn more about these companies so that I could promote them and I could get people booking their travel dreams, you know, and making them a reality so that they were living a little bit more and they got that sense of life back. Because as we all know, with chronic illness, we feel like we lose ourselves, we lose our lives and we just, we lose control. And I, I just wanted to give people control back in the in sort of giving them the tools over my podcast and through my instagram with kind of building up their skill sets getting creative with hobbies seeing life in a positive way but then also getting them out exploring the world with my travel business so sophie i think it's really beautiful what you're doing for this community uh with both your social media and instagram which is as i said a really beautiful page and i'm going to in our show notes, we're going to urge people to visit your, uh, your page. I think you're doing a wonderful job with your podcast. And I'm even more excited about what you're doing with your travel business in an effort to try to take people from the place where you were, where you were isolated and you were essentially living by yourself in, a, in an apartment to a place where they can now meet other people in the world, maybe other people who are going through the same challenges that they're having. And one of the things that Matt and I have noticed through some of our past interviews is that it's difficult for people with Lyme disease and chronic illnesses generally to travel because at least plane travel will cause some challenges with the immune system, which mm -hmm. will in some cases make people sick. So do you have any advice for folks who are going to travel about what steps they may want to take to enhance their immune system so that they can have a good experience when they travel? So when it comes to the immune system, I definitely watch diet and make sure that you're eating a like great range of fruit and vegetables because that's the best way to boost your immune system. Also, it's, it's crazy, but when you're sort of excited and you're in that frame of mind, you're instantly boosting your immune system without even realizing it. So I think being in a, a great mindset, getting excited, sort of doing all you can to be excited about the trip, whether it's you know, packing or thinking about family or making memories or, you know, packing your camera, think about all the activities you're going to be doing. That's a really, really good way to think about it as well. Also getting enough rest. Rest is key and sleep is the best way to detox, recharge, keep your immune system strong. So making sure that you, you've got a great sleep routine is, is really great. 
booking assistance with the airlines is also really great. So they can assist you if you're like wheelchair bound, they'll make sure that you've got a wheelchair so you're not walking. And again, if you're, um, if you struggle walking in general, you can walk a certain amount, but you can't walk, you know, you know what airports are like. It's sort of 20, 25 minutes to a gate. It's a long way and it saps our energy. So be honest with the airline and they can accommodate you by offering you a wheelchair or getting you to the gate like quickly. So that's really, really helpful. They'll also fast track you through security so you don't have to stand around in queues because again, energy is a big, big thing. You don't want to be zapping your energy and then feel low because as soon as you get off that plane, you want to be buzzed, you want to be hyped, you really want to be excited about your travel trip. So that's a really, really important thing. Also, if you take a lot of sort of medications or you need a lot of medications with you, whether it's on the flight and if you need sort of extra immune system boosters while you're on the flight and things like that, or masks, it's always best to contact the airline and tell them that you have a lot of medication, show that um, your prescriptions that you need, and they can sometimes give you an extra bit on your weight limit and they can also accommodate you and um, when it comes to sort of like allergens masks things like that they'll um, do all they can to accommodate you so Sophie you've given us an unbelievable uh, amount of great advice not only for the folks who are on their Lyme journey but people who are now trying to uh, regain some of their lives so let's ask you one more piece of advice uh, so that we can uh, round out this podcast I'm going to ask you the question we ask everyone, and that is, if God forbid tomorrow your mother came into you and she said she had been in the yard and she found a tick biting her on the leg, what advice would you give to your mom about what to do with that tick and then ultimately to do with herself so that she wouldn't have to go through the terrible journey you've had to go through? Definitely. So um, we carry tick tweezers now wherever we go. With my dad's businesses as well, he has them on site in his first aid kit because he obviously sees what's happened to me. So I'd obviously remove it with the tick tweezers properly and I'd send it off to Public Health England to be examined to see what it came back with. We'd also, I'd make sure that I like photographed the bites from where the tick had come from and I'd monitor it over the next few days. I'd make my mum track her temperature, all of the symptoms that she may or may not be having. If she was okay after seven days, I'd say, you know, that that's fine. If it was getting worse or the, it came up as a bullseye rash, I'd get to the doctors like immediately, just get it straight there, show the rash. If there was wasn't any rash, but she was having fever, chills, all those kind of symptoms after kind of seven days, I'd tell her to go um, again to get go to the doctors and get those antibiotic treatments um, sorted out. Like I said, some people don't always have the, the sort of um, symptoms or the telltale bullseye, bullseye rash. Only 50% actually get the bullseye rash. So, so sometimes it's very difficult because, especially with children, they can be picking up infections all the time. So if they're coming to you with a fever-like sort of symptom, you may just think they've got fever, give them some like cowpaw or like painkillers to relieve it. But you really, really need to be thinking about where they've been. Have they been out in the garden? Have they been playing outside? Have they been um, at a park, a theme park? Anything like that, just think back. And I just go to the doctors and, and play safe and just say, look, you know, my, my child or a loved one, they were doing this, that and the other. They were at a barbecue. They were out having a picnic. They've been having these symptoms. 
you know, could it be Lyme? Can I be put on antibiotics or be tested? Because I just want to make sure, I just want to make sure that I'm all clear because I've had a loved one of mine go through Lyme disease and it's awful and I've seen them deteriorate and I don't want that for myself or my loved one either. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Sophie Ward. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Sophie Ward, please visit her Instagram page at Sophie's Wardy. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.